As you're taking your seat, go ahead and grab your Bible and open up to 1 Peter chapter 2. As you're getting yourself situated there, I want to kind of share with you a story, a story that was originally told by Elliot Clark. He, he tells the story of a, a, a girl named Miriam, a young woman named Miriam. She was a, an ardent evangelist. She was young. She was only 17 years old, but had a steadfast passion for the gospel, which she faithfully proclaimed to her friends and classmates and anybody who would listen. In fact, it was her outspokenness about her faith that landed her in the principal's office one day. She faced a threat of expulsion, public shaming, and even the possibility of legal charges against her for a quote-unquote missionary activity. You see, Miriam was a Christian living in a Muslim-majority nation in Central Asia. Earlier that day, Miriam's teacher had been lecturing on Christianity, explaining that Christians believe in three different gods, that they are guilty of shirk, which is the worst possible sin in Islam, by worshiping Jesus, and that they accepted four different insul or gospels that are corrupt and contradictory. He had likely, up to this point, never received any kind of pushback or any kind of opposition, but on this day, Miriam raised her hand, and she asked if she could address and amend his description, explaining that Christians actually didn't believe what he suggested they did. He questioned her and asked her how she knew and if she understood the Bible or had any idea of the Bible, and she said, in fact, she did, and she proceeded to pull out a copy of God's Word. Before a classroom of 38 students and in a high school without a single other Christian, she boldly defended the gospel, asserting that Christians believe in one God and that the four gospels demonstrate a unified message of how Jesus is the Christ who fulfills the Old Testament promises. She even described how she found certain Islamic beliefs unconvincing and untenable, and before she could reason any further with the teacher or with the classroom, the teacher abruptly stopped her and sent her immediately to the principal's office. You hear stories like this, and I don't know about you, but it, it forces me to ask questions like, how is it possible for people to make such a powerful stand for Jesus Christ? knowing there will be negative and costly consequences. And when Miriam was asked this very question, her response was to declare that she was simply overcome with this sense that her friends were following falsehoods, error. They did not know the truth that could set them free. They were misinformed about Christianity. They had wrong perceptions about what it meant to know God and to follow Jesus Christ. She was burdened with the fact that her peers had blindly accepted the opinions of others without all of the facts. And since her conversion, she had a growing desire and a growing sense of her own calling, the calling of God upon her life as a follower of Jesus Christ. She had been waiting for an opportunity just like this for some time, she said. And in the moment, she declared that she had to take it. And I think many of us feel like this. 
We love the Lord Jesus Christ. We love the gospel of Jesus Christ. We know the truth of the gospel, and we desperately do want other people to know about Jesus Christ. And many of us, like Miriam, are waiting for the the right opportunity, the best opportunity to simply declare our faith with boldness. But, But listen, I wonder how many of us would actually do what Miriam did in her situation. How many of us say we want to do that, but when faced with the opportunities to do just that, we shrink back? We're driven more by fear of the world than we are a fear of God. We're driven more by a love of self-preservation than we are about a love for the glory of God and a love for those who don't know God and desperately need to. Miriam understood something that Peter wants every Christian to understand, that we must speak up about the truth. We must seize the opportunities. We must declare the good news. And our newfound position in Jesus Christ comes with this incredible privilege. It is a privilege to be able to know the truth, and it is a privilege to be able to declare the truth. That's exactly what the Word of God wants us to know this morning. We have been saved on purpose, and we have been saved for a purpose. This is really a part two of last week's message where we looked at the privilege of our position. And this week, in a a similar way, we see that this is the privilege of our position, that we are God's people for God's proclamation. We are the people that God has identified, has loved, has chosen, has saved, has redeemed, and now is using mightily for his glory to proclaim his greatness, his saving power. Peter, playing off of what he had previously said, that there are some who would believe the gospel, some who would believe in and put their faith in Jesus Christ as the living stone and the cornerstone, also reminds us that there are many who will not do that. Many have rejected Jesus Christ, refusing to bow the knee to him. And then he says these words in chapter 2, verse 9. You can follow along with me. He says, unlike those who have rejected and were destined for this kind of rejection, he says this, but you, but you, he says, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession." that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Here again, Peter identifies for us that our position comes with this unique privilege We get to be the people who declare and proclaim the excellencies of our God. The God who has saved us wants to use us to save others. What an immense privilege when you process that just for a moment to consider how God wants to use you this morning. If you are a part of his people, God has a plan for you. You don't have to figure out your ultimate purpose and goal in life. You know exactly what it is because God has told you what it is. So how are we to understand this? And how has God told us this through this passage that we are the people for God's proclamation? Here's the first way in which we see this. We are intentionally defined in God. 
We are intentionally defined in God. In other words, God looks at us and he wants us to recall our identity again. It's interesting how often the word of God constantly pulls us back into this idea of understanding our identity. We're so busy trying to manufacture our own identities trying to define our own lives in a variety of different ways by what we do, by our position, by our career, by our education, by our hobbies, by our abilities. And here we see this, that God, he pushes all that to the side and he says, you don't need to define yourself. I've already defined you and I've done so intentionally in a way that helps you understand how you're supposed to live because of who you actually are. We've seen already in 1 Peter 2, in the previous section, in, in 4 through 8, how the identity of the Christian establishes um, the identity of the church. The identity of Christ, excuse me, establishes the identity of the church. We saw last week that, that Jesus Christ is the living stone, and our connection to him turns us into living stones. That God is building us up into a, a holy place, a temple of his presence. Let me just remind you again that our connection to God defines our position in God and therefore the privileges from God. Last week, we, we looked at the privilege of His presence, that we are uniquely brought into this relationship where we have special access to God. All of us as believers are given this immense privilege of being able to draw near to God, of being able to know His presence in such a potent and powerful way. But Peter's statements here in verse 9, they actually press deeper into the Christian's identity. He, he uses four phrases here, all of them deeply connected to the Old Testament scriptures. And this is the point of the imagery that Peter is employing. He's wanting us to understand in a greater way our identity as followers of Jesus Christ, as the church of Jesus Christ. These titles come from Exodus 19, when God constituted Israel as a nation, and they're also coming out of Isaiah 43, where God promised to reestablish Israel after their exile. These are foundational statements about Israel. These were statements that the nation of Israel uh, were holding onto, that gripped their hearts that helped them understand how they were to operate in the world that God had placed them in. But I want you to see this, that by applying them to his church, Peter is actually telling um, these Gentiles and these Jews that the privileges of Israel are now theirs. They're now ours. If we're in Christ, if we are part of the family of God, everything that is said about Old Testament Israel is now applied to us. We have the same privileges and the same problems prob not problems, probably that too, promises that they had. They may be aliens and exiles, cast out and rejected by their former people, but God has taken them in. And with these titles, we see come a unique understanding of our responsibility and our great privilege. And let's just quickly look at these titles. Notice the first one that he uses there, but you are a chosen race. Again, don't miss the fact that God is the one who has called you. God is the one who has chosen you. This idea of being a, a, a chosen race is really helpful. I think it's interesting. We often 
describe people by their race, especially in a a growing kind of ethnically diverse culture, oftentimes describing somebody, at least in part by their their race or their ethnicity, is one of the first things we go to. It's one of the first kind of out external, excuse me, indicators of maybe um, describing somebody. I'll, I'll never forget when my, my daughter, Karis, when she went into, into kindergarten, she went into, into school in the classroom, in a very ethnically diverse classroom in school, and she came home and she was trying to describe to us all of her new friends. And, and one of the things, if, if you didn't know, um, um, I, I'm in an interracial marriage, so this is helpful context, okay? Um, so my daughter um, she's mixed, and she, she's in this classroom. She's trying to describe her friends, and so she, she, she comes home, and she's describing her friend, and she, she can't really come up with the words. She's like, she's like well, well, she's, Dad, she's peach. I'm like, what? What do you mean she's peach? She's peach like you, so she says. <laughs> I'm like, if I'm peach, well, what are you? She goes, well, I'm dark peach. It's interesting how one of the first things we see about people often is their ethnicity, their race. But I want you to hear this, that according to the word of God, listen, irrespective of ethnicity, believers have been united by faith in Jesus Christ to be a new people of God. We are a new race together. And race, by the way, has nothing to do with ethnicity because this race that God has created in this place, in the church of the living God, listen, is made up of every single ethnicity. It is a spiritual race, a chosen race, defined not by color or by culture, but by confession and creed. This race is defined by the one in whom we believe, Jesus Christ, the Lord of all. And by the way, this is supposed to be the most identifiable thing about us. It is, listen, that we are children of God, that we are a part of God's family, that we are a chosen spiritual race in him. Notice, secondly, he uses this phrase, that we are a royal priesthood. Priests, again, as we saw last week, had this unique blessing and privilege of of having access to God's presence. But all of Israel was told that they were, in a sense, a, a kingdom of priests. That they, amongst all the other nations, had together a unique access to the presence of God. But they also had this unique privilege and role that they were called as priests to mediate God's presence to the world around them. Israel's priesthood meant that they were to mirror to the nations the glory of God so that all the nations would see that their God had no rivals, that there was no one like their God. They were to be a walking billboard for the glory of Yahweh, their God. They were to show the world that this God had drawn near to a people, that this God could be accessed in a particular way. Unfortunately, Israel mainly failed at this endeavor. They were constantly living in rebellion and disobedience. They failed at this job. They did not show the nations that their God was greater than the gods of the nations. They dishonored their own God. They brought reproach upon the name of their God. But God looks at the church. He looks at you and me and he says, listen, we now have this unique priestly role. We are a kingdom of priests. We are a royal priesthood. The church of Jesus Christ has taken upon themselves this very role that we are to mediate 
God's presence and blessing to the world around us. We are royal because we have submitted to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We are royal because we have been sent as ambassadors of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We herald the good news of the King. You see, it is now our great privilege as a royal priesthood to mediate God's blessing to the nations. And the way in which we do that, as we will see, is by not only living in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but by very clearly proclaiming and heralding the message of our king. He says, third, that we are a holy nation. In other words, he wants to remind us, as we've sung about already this morning, that this world is not our home. We have been given a new citizenship. We have been set apart to him and for him. This is what our God does. This is what our God is like. That's what we proclaim as as a nation. We are telling the world, this is what makes us different from everyone else. We are holy because our God is holy. As a nation, we represent our God. And so our God calls us to be like him, as we've seen earlier in this letter, to be holy like the Lord is holy. And then Peter uses this fourth phrase. He he says the church is a people for his own possession. We're a people for his own possession, literally a people belonging to God. The phrase actually comes right out of Isaiah 43, verse 21, where God calls Israel my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself. And this idea of possession, by the way, is more than merely ownership. You see, God possesses his people because he redeemed them. He purchased them. He bought them out of slavery. And so he exhorts them in Isaiah 43, verse 1. He says, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. I love this. When you, just, when you hear this, listen, when you consider that this is the way God spoke of Israel of old, you need to see that this is the exact way that God speaks and thinks of you. He chose you as his possession. You are defined in God. He has called you by name. You are his. And there is no greater joy than knowing that you are loved by the Father. I love this. This is, this is the reality that we are intentionally defined by God, but we are intimately defined in God. And this is who we are because of our relationship to him. And, and again, I would just say to you, you know, we're so busy trying to define ourselves by our own achievements, by the praise of the world, by the things we can accumulate, the name that we can make for ourselves, that we forget that our God has already defined us with such beautiful intentionality. You don't have to keep fighting to make a name for yourself. You can simply do what the scriptures call you to do. Embrace your God-given identity. Like, remind your heart often. This is, this is what I feel like I need. You say, how does this apply to my life? Listen, here's what Peter is wanting to do. You have to see this. He is constantly, as he exhorts us, he is bringing us back to truth, the truth of who we are. He brings us back to the gospel realities because we desperately need to hear this because we constantly forget it. He's saying embrace this, repeat this to yourself, remind your heart of these truths. Every time you feel a battle with your identity, every time you try to prove yourself to others, every time you try to fight for your reputation, remind yourself of what God says about you. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for his own possession. Listen, just remember, 
the believers he's writing to were facing the shame and scorn of the world around them. They were rejected and despised. They had no reputation. They had no value and no worth in the world. And God is saying to them again, who cares what the world thinks about you? All you need to know is what God says about you. Such important truth. It's, such, it's so good for my heart to be reminded of this. God, help us to embrace our identity. And notice this, secondly, we are the people for God's proclamation strategically deployed for God. And you can see we've already kind of been bridging into this. It's hard to escape it because all of this identity stuff is constantly being set before us so that we remember, listen, the purpose. Here's why. Here's why you need to know who you are so that you can know how you're supposed to live. If you know who you are, you can be reminded of the purpose for which you have been called, for which you have been chosen, for which you have been made a priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own choosing, his own possession. And he says, here it is, you're strategically deployed for God. Notice what he says in the word here, just look back at your Bibles. He says this, that you, listen, this is so that, here's the purpose, that you may, here's circle this in your Bible if you mark your Bible up, proclaim that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Paul is so clear here. The privileged position of God's people leads to privileged action. God is not looking for a stagnant people. He is looking for a people on mission. Because God has redeemed us and we are his, we are heralds now who exist to proclaim the excellencies of God. I don't know what kind of life goals you have. I don't know what kind of missions you set. I don't know what kind of advancement you're looking for, but I can tell you this. God has given you one overarching goal in your life, and that is to be a proclaimer of the excellencies of the God who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Everything, listen, everything else, any other goal you think you have that is important in your life is not even close to this single goal that God has given you. And this is challenging for us. And I understand that. Listen, I, this is a weighty topic and a weighty reality, but here's why. Because so many of us struggle to do just this. So many of us, on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, on a, on a year, we look at our lives and we say, am I faithfully doing this? Am I actually proclaiming God to the world around me? And I think the honest answer for many of us is not very often or, or not faithfully or not consistently. It's there maybe every once in a while, but it's really not a massive part of my life. And here's what you need to see Peter calling us to. This has to be the dominating part of your life. This is a non-negotiable. I mean, when we get to stand before Jesus Christ, when we get to, when he looks at us, we want to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. And so much of that statement is going to be dependent upon what you did with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe you've heard people say things like this. Well, um, preach the gospel and use words if necessary. Just take that phrase up, crumple it up and throw it in the garbage. That's, that phrase drives me nuts. I'm not going to go on a rant. I thought about it, but I'm not going to. I just... 
Listen, I understand what people mean. And by the way, Peter's going to talk a lot about how we live our lives as being a way in which we display the gospel. There's no getting around that. That's incredibly important. My fear, though, is that people use phrases like this to avoid doing the other half of what we're called to, which is actually faithfully proclaim the gospel, like with words. Because nobody gets saved without hearing the gospel from somebody's lips. Nobody. Peter never intended to portray our evangelism solely in terms of quiet humility and respectable conduct. It is not less than that, but can I just let you know and remind you, it is so much more than that. He expected Christians facing, listen, shame, consider the context here, facing shame, social exclusion, and even persecution to embrace their exile by boldly preaching the gospel with authority. It's like this is how you embrace your position in life. You actually boldly proclaim the excellencies of your God. Even, catch this, this is really, really important, even when people don't want to hear it. Even when it's sure to invite ridicule and suffering. In fact, Peter frames our responsibility to preach the gospel in view of our rejection. He's telling us, expect that this is going to be reality. He's just told us that the living stone, the cornerstone, has been rejected. And he's screaming to us, don't you get it? If you're going to be faithful, if you are going to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, you will not be any different than your Savior. There will be some who gladly and gratefully receive, but there are going to be many more who reject it and hate it, and they reject you in the process. It's common, I think, as Christians to have an overly passive approach to our evangelism. I really, I'm going to try here to very carefully address what I think is a, a, a cultural Christianity issue in our present day and age. I think many of us, and I would include myself in this sadly oftentimes, are way too hesitant in sharing our faith, in preaching the gospel. Many of us use language like this, well, I'm just waiting for the right opportunity. But we're not like Miriam who actually take advantage of the opportunity, <laughs> Many of us use phrases like this, well, you know, you, you got to pick your spots, right? you got to be really careful. You can't move too quickly. you got to pick the right spots, and you got to really warm people up, or you got to just, you know, kind of slowly chip away, and eventually, eventually they're going to say, hey, wait a second, would you please tell me about Jesus? Or we say things like, it's not always appropriate to share. There was a group of converts from a, another Muslim country where, and they're meeting, and they're having a discussion about this, and they're in a discipleship meeting, and, and their conversation was really about all of this. And many of the, the, the individuals in this group, recent converts even to Islam, who were facing serious persecution and shame and ostracization, they were making these kind of statements. There's one young man named Mustafa. He sat there silently, his hands folded across the small New Testament on his lap, and leaning forward in his chair, he quietly shared wisdom that was well beyond his years. He explained that prior to talking with somebody about the gospel, he starts by resetting his expectations. This is so good. This is so good. He does this by rehearsing passages where Jesus actually explains exactly what will happen to his followers when they speak of him. He says things like, you know, we're going to be insulted. 
Jesus promised will be ostracized and maybe even beaten. He said, so I, I set my expectations according to his word. This is so good. He continued, he said, that way I'm not surprised when something bad happens. After this, he explained how he prays for boldness. And only then does he feel ready to be a witness. He looked around the room and he concluded, believe me, brothers, I've been ostracized and insulted, but I've received blessings from the Lord every time I've opened my mouth. May God raise up an army of fearless Mustafas here and now. May God allow us to take this wisdom from this young man and apply them directly into our lives. May we set, listen, our expectations according to the word of God. May we remind our hearts that this is the reality. This is what God calls us to. And may we pray for the boldness that we ought to have in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sometimes the contemporary Christian language that we've adopted doesn't actually help us in this, and I've even used it in this message. We, we talk about, listen, primarily when we think about witnessing, we talk about sharing the gospel, don't we? Sharing our faith, and I'm not going to harp too much on this, but I just want you to see how sometimes language makes a big difference in how we end up operating in the world. The idea of sharing actually implies that the one we're sharing with wants what we actually have, or that we're simply going to give it to willing recipients, And this is a big problem because the Bible rarely uses terms like this to describe evangelism. Scripture speaks primarily, listen to this, of preaching, declaring, and proclaiming the message. And these words, listen, we just need to embrace sometimes biblical language because it helps us understand the way in which we're supposed to live and communicate. These words convey a kind of fearlessness, a courage, and a boldness when it comes to the gospel. They communicate a sense of urgency and authority. So let me just maybe give you a couple practical things to consider as as you are maybe digesting this as I am too and wanting to grow in this because our desire should be to want to grow in how we proclaim the gospel. If this is what God's called us to, if this is the purpose for which God has saved us, one of the primary purposes, then this ought to be what we take seriously. So here's what I want to suggest to you and maybe exhort you to. um, Two things. First is this, be willing to offend. This speaks really to the idea of authority. Be willing to offend. Embrace the reality that the gospel is offensive to many. The gospel will bring conflict in your life. And if you aren't willing to offend, you'll never say much of anything. I'm not encouraging you, by the way, to be offensive in your approach. Please understand that. I hope I shouldn't have to qualify that. If, if you are brash and belligerent with the gospel of Jesus Christ, shame on you. We preach the truth in love. We share it with compassion. But we need to make sure that we are not sugarcoating the truth. We need not fear conflict. We need to be willing to offend. You know, again, you know, every once in a while, I'll I'll be friending a a person, and you'll hear this. You know, maybe you're an unbeliever here today. You're like, well, Christians just want to be my friend so so they can convert me. Yes, yes. You've got. Now at least we're on the same page. Okay. Listen. The primary reason I want to befriend an unbeliever is so that I can introduce him to my friend Jesus Christ. 
there are lots of other good benefits to making friends, okay? I'm not, I'm not disputing any of that, but I need to be honest with you. And, and if you're an unbeliever here today, you need to hear this from us. We love you so much that everything else we would want to be friends with you for is trivial compared to the one reason we need to be friends with you. It's trivial. We want you to know the joy that we have. We want you to know the blessings of, of salvation that are found in no other name under heaven but the name of Jesus Christ. We want you to know that you can be forgiven from your sins. We want you to know the purpose for which you were created. We want you to know the healing power of the gospel in every area of your life. We want you to know the living hope that you can have, that one day Jesus Christ is going to return and you will be in his presence forever. We need you to know, listen church, we need the world to know that we are not ashamed of the gospel. We need the world to know that. And one of the ways we demonstrate that is that we have no fear in proclaiming it. We do it with love and compassion, but we must not shrink back and shirk our responsibility. The second thing, let me encourage you to do this, is, is call people for a response. Call for a response. This, this is embodying this idea of urgency when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am more convicted and convinced that we must be a people who don't just let the truth sit out there. There is a time for that. There's a place for that. Please don't take what I'm saying and, and react and pendulum swing the other way. I just, I want you to hear what I'm saying very clearly. I'll qualify it as much as I can, but just please take it for what it is. We must be a people who not only deliver the truth, the content with, with clarity and in a compelling way, as, as compellingly as we can communicate it, we must be a people who call people to respond to the truth. We can't just say, here's the truth and let it sit out there. We need to bring the truth and call people to grab a hold of the truth with everything they have. The gospel is a summons from the king. God commands all people everywhere to repent and he uses human preachers to do so. This is love, church. This is love to call people to hold fast to the truth, to cling in repentance and faith to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we plead with somebody, this is, listen, this is how it should happen in our lives. We must be a people who plead with people to turn from sin, sometimes with tears in our eyes, sometimes with a lump in our throat, sometimes letting our stomach feel the weight of what we are communicating and desperately wanting people to know what we know and believe what we believe. You are, listen church, when you call people to respond, you're expressing love and compassion because you're telling them the only way, the only way they can be saved. You're telling them that the mercy of God has come for them. You're calling them to join you in following Jesus, to repent and believe, to submit and surrender. The book of Acts gives us repeated examples of this kind of authoritative, urgent preaching that is done with love and compassion. And, and that's done, by the way, even in the face of suffering. We find the apostles proclaiming the gospel, speaking boldly, persuading and pleading. They reason from the scriptures, expounding and applying it. They testify before rulers and governors, bearing witness before civil crowds and angry mobs, sharing the gospel? No. Declaring the gospel? Yes. We are strategically deployed to the ministry of proclamation. Can I tell you how strategic this is? It's so, so strategic. God has not only chosen you, God has not only made you his possession, God has not only made you a holy nation and a royal priesthood, God knows exactly where he's placed you. He knows the time and date he saved you. He knows where he's got you right now, and he knows every single person around you who needs to hear the gospel from your lips. 
There, there is no accident. You're, you're not on your street by accident. You're not in your family by accident. You're not around your neighbors by, you're not in your workplace by accident. You may hate it and you may not want to be there any longer, but while you're there, I'll tell you this, you have a purpose and you have a reason for being there because people need to hear about Jesus from you. And I just want to encourage you. And so often we hear messages like this and we're like, yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know. And then we leave here and then we hear the next one, listen, in a couple months, maybe something very similar, and we go, oh yeah, I, I forgot to do something with that. Church, there's no time for wait. There's no time to waste. And, and, and listen, the, the most practical, listen, if you want to you do something with this, if you're like, yes, Lord, I feel the conviction right now in my heart. I know this is true. I, I know this is right. I know this is what you call me to. You want to know what you can do? You can commit right now to writing down a name and saying, this week, I'm going to go share my faith with this person. Sorry, I shouldn't say that. I'm going to go declare the gospel. You see, it's just so embedded. And listen, I'm not anti-share. Of course you're sharing your faith. But listen, my, my point is this. Write a name down and actually do it. Like, God help us. But, but listen, don't, don't walk out of here with just some ambiguous understanding of what we're supposed to do. Let's get specific about this. Like, pray right now, right now. God, who is it right now in my life that you want me to share the gospel with this week? God, who is it that you are pressing upon my heart? Who is it that I must step out in boldness and love with courage and share Christ with? And then here, listen, listen, listen to the best. Then go do it. I don't care what it costs you. I don't care what you gotta move in your schedule. Do it. Get it out of the way. Knock on their door. Take them out for lunch. Have them in your house. for. Do whatever needs to be done so that they can hear the gospel from you. And pray, pray desperately that God would work in their hearts because we know this. Listen, that while God uses means to communicate the gospel, it is only the power of the spirit of God that allows people to receive the gospel. Amen? Okay, so pray, but do. And God help us. God help us. How sweet would it be if we came back next week? Think about this. If we came back next week and every single person in this room stood up and said, I shared Christ this week. I declared the gospel this week. I told my neighbor, my coworker, my family member about how they could be saved in Jesus Christ. Who knows what God might do if we begin to take this seriously? Who knows how many people, listen, God is just waiting to reap a harvest into the church because his people declared that they would be faithful. It would be awesome if we came in here next week and the, we couldn't, listen, we, didn't, we ran out of seats because we invited so many people to come to church because we had shared Christ with them. Wouldn't it? Where all of us seasoned followers of Jesus Christ had to take a, a week and stand at the back to let all of the new people who are hearing about Jesus for the first time have a seat. Did you see the content of the proclamation here that Paul speaks of. What exactly is it that we're proclaiming? I mean, we've talked about it here, but I love how he frames it here, excuse me, Peter. He says, the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. I mean, can you just, can you just this is so sweet. There is an exaltation involved in our proclamation. This isn't just some cold, dead, clinical path to God. This is a praise-inducing exaltation-driven kind of proclamation that he is calling us to. We are preaching, listen, hard truths. Yes, we speak of terrifying realities. We speak of, of sin and wrath and hell, but we preach the glories of the gospel. 
We preach good news, the excellencies of him who conquered sin and death. We preach that there is a God who loved us and who gave his own son to rescue us, who suffered death and the penalty for sin on our behalf and rose victoriously from the grave. We are declaring a living savior, one who is exalted to the right hand of the father right now as we speak. And we've just sung about it, right? This is what we proclaim. We celebrate the living hope of new life and our praise and exaltation must flow to others as we tell them how he has delivered us out of darkness and into marvelous light. In other words, what Peter is telling us here, this is so important to understand, is that worship is essential to evangelism, okay? Which is why he reminds us lastly that we are wonderfully delivered by God. We are wonderfully delivered by God. We're the people for God's proclamation, wonderfully delivered by God. Here again, this is intended to be fuel for our proclamation. In verse 10, Peter says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And when you combine that, that with this idea that once you were in darkness and now you're in his marvelous light, and you got this trifecta of beauty and power of the gospel. Peter actually is drawing here from an Old Testament book and an Old Testament picture that he's painting. He's drawing from the, the minor prophet Hosea. If you know anything about the book of Hosea, you know this, that it's an interesting story where God allows Hosea the prophet to live out, to enact in real time God's kindness and love to a rebellious people. In this kind of divine drama, Hosea plays the part of God. And his wife, his unfaithful wife, Gomer, plays the part of Israel. They're an adulterous people. They're a rebellious people. But what's interesting in this story is that Hosea and Gomer have three children, and God actually tells Hosea, as he's enacting again this divine drama, what to name these children. The kids' names are a lesson to the people of God. Here's what he tells Hosea to name his kids. The first kid is supposed to be named God Scatters. That's what the name means. I'll just give you the meanings of the names. God scatters. The idea is scatters outside of the land. The second child is supposed to be named not pitied. And the third child is to be named not my people. You think you had it rough in school. But in, in the story, and using this real life picture, in the book of Hosea, God changes their names. He says, this is, this is essentially who they are. This is what they're doing. But God changes their names, and he plays off of their names. Um, God scatters, is, is changed. The name is changed into planted or sown. And the idea is, again, planted in the land. Not pitied is changed into I will have mercy. And not my people is changed into you are my people. And you see what? Peter, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is communicating to us today and to the church that was receiving this letter in the first century is that this has been the experience of all God's people for all time. That we all lived in rebellion to him. That we all lived for the pleasures of this world. That we all lived in, in sin and in wickedness. 
Every one of us, as a result of our sin, were strangers and aliens. We were separated from God. We weren't a part of his family. We rebelled against his kingship, of his, against his, his love towards us. These Gentiles in the first century, they had practiced a pagan polytheism that Peter calls the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. For them, Peter's going to go on to say in chapter 4, Um, that they were characterized by debauchery and immorality and idolatry, and these things were so common in these people that it seemed strange when anybody departed from them. But here, what Peter says by the power of the Spirit is that things have now changed. And and let these contrasts resonate uh, with your own heart this morning. Once darkness, now light. Once alone, now in God's family. Once awaiting judgment, now receiving mercy. You see, this tells the story of the redemptive love of God for Israel, and it reminds us that this is a picture of God's redemptive love for all people across all ages. It's for you today. If you're here today and you find yourself wrestling with the truth of the gospel, here's what you need to see, that you ought to have the same name as wicked, rebellious Israel and all of us who have offended a holy and mighty God. You should be scattered away from God. You should be not pitied. You should be not his people, but God loved you so much that he came to you in the cross of Jesus Christ. And he calls you today and he says, come to me, come and, come and receive my mercy and my love. Come and find my marvelous light. Repent and believe. This day, receive the gift of salvation. Embrace the living hope. Find new life. What is Peter doing for the church? I said it before, but let me say it again. I want this to be so clear. He is fueling our proclamation by fueling our praise. So why does he end here? Why does he do this? He knows that our proclamation is going to be radically altered and heightened if he elicits a heart of praise from us. Proclamation and praise are intimately intertwined. In fact, C.S. Lewis, he said it so well, he said this, we praise that which we most enjoy. In fact, our enjoyment of something isn't complete until we have communicated that happiness to others. So joy, he says, in a good book or a breathtaking vista finds its fullness in the expression of praise, in declaring our experience to others so they too can share in it. You see, we have been set apart for special service unto God, called to declare God's praises to the world around us. And the moment our hearts stop praising God for what he's done in us, we fail to live out his purpose for us. If we are not faithfully proclaiming the gospel to those around us, it's because we're not overflowing with praise to God. I see this in my own heart. If evangelism doesn't exist, here, listen, listen, this is so good. If evangelism doesn't exist in your life, it's because worship does not exist in your heart. John Piper says that missions exist because worship doesn't. I I love that. And his point is this, listen, missions exist because we want all the world to know the glory of God and to offer him the worship that is worthy of his name. So we go forth and we tell people about Jesus because we want more worship to go to Jesus. But he also suggests that worship is more than just the goal of missions, it's the fuel of missions. Weak praise produces weak proclamation. 
But white-hot worship produces powerful proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, praise is the most natural thing in the world for us. We do it all the time. You are a person who worships. You are a person who praises. Constantly, we all do it. We rave about restaurants. We brag about sports teams. We carry on about the latest book or Netflix series that we watched or our last vacation. We adore musicians. We endorse politicians. We obsess over celebrities. We promote our kids, and we post about our morning coffee. We sing the praises of just about everything. But ask us to raise our voice in praise to God outside of a weekend worship service or even in it, and we struggle to say a word. Elliot Clark said this, we demonstrate an incredible ability to proclaim the glories of endless earthly trivialities, and we somehow stutter and stammer at the opportunity to speak with others about our eternal hope. So it's obvious our gospel silence isn't because our mouths are broken, it's because our hearts are. Because if we worship God as we should, our neighbors, co-workers, and friends would be the first to hear about it. You see what Peter is doing here? Peter's reminding us of the privilege of proclamation. And he does that by stoking the fires of worship and praise. He ignites our hearts with the glories of the gospel. You were once like this, but now in Christ, you are this. And the greatest application you can walk out of here with is not, I must do, do, do. It's this, listen, I must learn to delight. I must learn to delight. Because when you delight, you will most certainly do what God calls you to do. Delight in the gospel. Be a person who worships fervently at the feet of the cross. You know, the force of our persuasion when it comes to evangelizing does not just come from the fact that our message is more believable than other messages, but that it's actually more desirable than other messages. It's better, it's sweeter, it's more satisfying. We aren't just making a logical case to people, we're making a doxological case to people. We aren't just talking at brains, we're speaking to hearts. We're not merely trying to convince people that our gospel is true, but listen, but that our God is good. And when we proclaim Jesus, they should see that this truth has changed our lives, that it ignites our hearts, and that it fuels our praise. So let us, listen, God's people, fuel our proclamation by fueling our praise this morning as we come to the Lord's table. Let the truth of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ fuel your praise and may it lead you and I to fueling our proclamation. Let your heart as you come to the Lord's table this morning be reminded, listen, how we have been intentionally defined by God, how we have been strategically deployed for God, and how we have been wonderfully delivered by God.